Greetings! Another episode of Wash Your Thoughts Away to another place. We've got Mac Haddle, American Kratom Association. Leaders in the Senate fighting for you, fighting for me, fighting for the Kratom Leaf, so all may be free. Wash your thoughts away. Excellent. You're on the air with Wash Your Thoughts, so I Kratom Life. We have Mac Hatto on the line. Hello, Mac. Yes, how are you? Can you explain Excellent. a little bit about who you are, please, sir? Sure. Uh, I currently serve as the Senior Fellow on Public Policy for the American Kratom Association, and my responsibility is to do whatever we can to protect uh, consumer access to Kratom, and we work around the country in the states and at the federal level in Washington, D.C., to, uh, to carry out our, our advocacy agenda uh, in order to keep creating legal for consumers in the United States. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a representative of this amazing herb, by the way. Thank you. We all appreciate you. Um, so how long, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Um, when did you first figure out and learn about Kratom and what did you think about it? Well, I, I've been active in the dietary supplement and herbal products arena for many, many years. I, I was the chief of staff at the Department of Health and Human Services under President Reagan. And during that time, there were a lot of attacks on the dietary supplement industry that was just starting to emerge, including Senator Roth's uh, hearings on Herbalife. Uh, and the FDA was very active in uh, going after Herbalife at that time. And while there at the, at the HHS, when these hearings were going on, uh, the FDA had issued a report claiming that Herbalife had killed six people. And so I, I asked for the details on that. And it gives you an illustration of the bias that the FDA has and the kinds of links that they will go to. And they've done with Kratom exactly what they did back in the mid-80s with Herbalife. And when I got the scientist in front of me, to explain exactly what the causation of the deaths that they attributed to Herbalife weight, weight loss products, uh, it was embarrassing because the first one, the one that they claimed was the best one, uh, was a morbidly obese woman that weighed 420 pounds who had all sorts of, of chronic health conditions related to her obesity, including cardiac issues for which she was on medication. And her doctor had told her that he could remove the, her from the medication that was giving her the adverse side effects if she could lose 40 pounds. And so she decided she was going to explore how to do that. And a friend of hers uh, recommended that she try Herbalife products and told her that if she went on an Herbalife product regimen in four or five months, she could probably lose that 40 pounds. Well, this woman in, in her own mind said, well, if I can do that with using Herbalife as recommended, over that four to five month period, if I can just quadruple the dose, I can lose that 40 pounds in one month. 
So she decided to do that, and she decided that she would also quit taking her cardiac medication because it was giving her some bad side effects. And she thought that while she was losing the weight, she wouldn't have to take that, uh, those, uh, those cardiac medications. She died of a heart attack two weeks later. Now, the FDA decided that the causation was that she started taking Herbalife, and Herbalife is what killed her, when in truth it was her failure to adhere to her doctor's prescription for her cardiac issue. Herbalife had nothing to do with that. Uh, her bad decision-making clearly did. So I was stunned by that description because the representation and the testimony that the FDA was going to provide to Senator Roth's oversight committee in the U.S. Senate was making that case number one. I said, surely you can give me a better case than that. And they said, well, the second one involved a, a 19-year-old young man in, uh, uh, in actually in Louisiana where he was stepping off the curb in, Louis- in, in um, uh, I'm sorry, in New Orleans, and he got hit by a bus. And I said, well, how does that relate to uh, the consumption of an Herbalife product? They said, well, he was taking Herbalife at the time, and we believe that he was distracted because uh, he was taking Herbalife products that it, it reduced his focus, and he just didn't see what he was doing. I said, did you have the autopsy report? And they did. And they showed it to me. He was on illicit drugs. He was a drug addict, and he was hit by a bus. So you fast forward to what they have done with Kratom when the FDA states to the American people publicly, repeatedly, that there are 44 deaths that are associated directly with the consumption of a Kratom product, and you look at their best case, it involves a man who, and they redacted the autopsy report that was provided to us under the Freedom of Information Act, which we thought was odd because all of the other 44 autopsy reports, with the exception of one for which there was no blood work or medical report, all seemed to be pretty clear in terms of at least what the, uh, the, the toxicology and autopsy report showed. But this one, as I say, was strange because it was completely redacted except for his name and the date of the death and the date of his birth. Uh, like and we everything asked, redacted? Everything. It looked like a Hillary Clinton email <laughs> FOIA from the State Department. And so we asked, well, what is it that precludes you from disclosing the information about this death? And they said, well, it's a HIPAA violation if we were to do so, which, of course, makes no sense because all of the others were pretty uh, robust Same, in the information yeah. they provided. Uh, so uh, a Huffington Post reporter uh, was looking into, uh, Nick Wing was his name, was looking into another uh, FDA story and stumbled across the autopsy report for that death in another FDA database that was completely unredacted, and he got it through a FOIA. And uh, what it showed was that the individual who died, uh, that they associated with a craving death, died of two gunshot wounds to the chest. And at the time of his death, he had multiple illicit drugs in his system and had kratom that was detected in the tox screen. Now, all of us know that it's not surprising that an individual who's struggling with opioid addiction, who is trying to wean off of opioids or to reduce the opioid uh, use that they have, it's not surprising they would have kratom show in a tox screen because we know anecdotally that people are very successfully using kratom to reduce or to eliminate opioid use. So the fact that the FDA would leap to this conclusion, and by the way, it's a self-serving one because they want to uh, implement their regulatory agenda. So you can see that 
that the same thing that they did back in 19, uh, the mid, mid-80s, probably 1984, uh, and then you saw them do essentially the same thing in 1993 when they were trying to ban all vitamins and dietary supplements, which resulted in the passage of the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, the DSHEA Act. They, the, the FDA yeah, say, goes, what was it called, the DSHEA? It's called the DSHEA Act. It's the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. When that bill was passed by the Congress, uh, the FDA was promoting for more than a year the ridiculous narrative that dietary supplements and vitamins were killing people. It's the same thing they're saying about Kratom today. And when you look behind it, they, were, of course, were talking about people that were struggling with all kinds of addictions. And they, there were deaths that were associated with adulterated products. Same is true today for Kratom. But the FDA has sufficient regulatory authority under the statutes that govern the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, they did then, they have today, authority to interdict adulterated products. Uh, they failed to do so because they want to have complete and total control, and they wanted to make every dietary supplement a, uh, subject to a new drug application, which, of course, takes, on average, 10 years today and two and a half to $3 billion, billion dollars in order to get. Uh, and, of course, there's wow. no incentive for any pharmaceutical company to invest in that kind of a project when there's no economic return at the end, and there certainly would not be for Kratom in its natural, pure form because it's so readily available and people can get the benefits. And even if a drug company were to find a way to synthesize Kratom and make it into a non-addictive pain relief uh, tool, it would still be available in the open market. So how do you eliminate the competition? You get the FDA to say, let's ban it. And that's essentially what's happening in this argument today. But back in 1994, when the Congress... Uh, was evaluating what to do with the FDA's recommendation. The, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act was proposed by Senator Hatch. And the literally, this is back in the day where the emails really weren't prevalent and weren't used. The Capitol switchboard, for the first time in the history of the U.S. Congress, was shut down by the volume of calls that were being made by people that believed in natural substances in order to maintain their health and well-being. And that resulted in an overwhelming passage of the DeShay Act by the Congress then. Now, there was one provision that was part of a grand compromise, which implicates Kratom today. And that is that the Congress said that for any substance that was in commerce in the United States prior to October 15th of 1994 would be grandfathered in. Now, we all know that Kratom has been in the United States at least from the, the uh, early 1970s. And that's when uh, our Vietnam soldiers were coming home and they had been, uh, of course, associated or exposed to Kratom over in Vietnam where they could pick it and chew it. And when you're out in the jungle on long, hard days, uh, when you're fighting a war, they found it to be very helpful for alertness, to sharpen their focus and to get through the day. And so yeah. they came home and they said, we want to continue to do it. At the same time, to use it, at the same time, there was a very significant escalation in long population immigration into the United States. So from the early 70s to the mid-1980s, there was a, a significant number of de ethnic deli shops that started to sell Kratom. That's commerce. Now, what we do know about the, the state of the industry at that time was that you know, only the very big retail establishments were just getting into software that would track the sales receipts and track the supply chain of products, it didn't get down to the ethnic deli 
uh, operations. Mom and pop stores didn't have that kind of sophisticated technology that was available. And even then, it was it was only the very large chains that did it. When you get to uh, the mid-1990s, when the the uh, the escalation of acceptance within the industry started to grow, that was the rationale for their looking at this. The FDA determined that there is no, even though there's abundant evidence to show from, from uh, affidavits people have filed, that they used Kratom, that they purchased Kratom, they refused to recognize it because that would exempt Kratom from the provisions of the Deshay Act that require that any substance that is added into commerce after October 15th of 1994 is required to have a, 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 a NDI application, uh, which means the FDA gets to approve or disapprove or accept a marketing application for a Kratom product. So that's the hook they hang themselves on uh, in order to justify their uh, unfair regulatory scheme against Kratom. Today, the Deshaies Act is basically the, holding us back? Well, it, it requires the company – the intent of the Deshaies Act was to allow for any substance that was – used safely in commerce in the United States prior to 1994. Oh, to be grandfathered in. Yes. And now a a new dietary ingredient application, an NDI application, has to be filed. And there have been several NDIs filed for Kratom. And guess what happens? The FDA denies them because they believe, based on – and, of course, Commissioner Gottlieb set in stone the policy of the FDA, and that was that Kratom is an opioid and therefore has to be an unapproved drug, not a a dietary ingredient. So that's the conundrum that we currently face and why uh, we have to take action in order to go to the states because the FDA is locked in on their their current policy. But the interesting thing, and, and it's important for people to understand, the Food and Drug Administration has great power, but it's limited when it comes to the scheduling of substances that are highly addictive. The Controlled Substances Act passed by the Congress delegates the authority for the designation of controlled substances to the Drug Enforcement Administration. The FDA and HHS can make a recommendation for scheduling, and they did so in August of 2016. Now, the important thing about that is that wait, 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 go back. What do you mean they? What do you mean they? They gave a recommendation for what? The FDA recommended that mitragyny and 7-hydroxymitragyny, the two prevalent alkaloids in Kratom, be scheduled as Schedule One controlled substances and therefore banned. That, that publication in the Federal Register was made on August 31st of 2016. For that recommendation to have been made, it required the consent of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, had actually signed off on that recommendation. But for the sake of argument, we can say that they did, uh, the, although some people dispute that. But nonetheless, the FDA went and said, let's do this. Now, they used a section of the Controlled Substances Act, which allows for a very rapid decision to be made without public comment and without judicial review. So it's an emergency power section, and that's what they filed it under. So here we found we were confronted with an enormously difficult problem that you had the, uh, the CSA, which allows for this emergency scheduling. Nobody can comment on it, and they just published it. The, uh, the DEA didn't know what Kratom was. They had, you know, they had a general idea about it being a drug of concern because of reports from the FDA, not because they knew any independent information. So 
in the 30-day period between the publication and September 30th, when it would have gone into effect, uh, the DEA was, was bombarded with public comments. 6,000 people plus wrote in and said, this is unfair, it shouldn't be scheduled, even though there's not a provision for public comment. They also received thousands of phone calls that got their attention. So they said, we better look at it. At the same time, we went up on Capitol Hill. And by the way, I should tell you that I told the American Cradle Association when they retained me to help with this, that it was impossible to overcome this uh, scheduling recommendation. And the only thing they could do is try a political route to, uh, to unwind it by getting the Congress convinced to do it. So we went up to the Congress and we found that there were 25 Democrats and 26 Republicans in the House of Representatives who signed a letter to the DA saying, don't schedule this on the Senate side. And by the way, this is bipartisan. 13 senators signed it. Uh, you had on one hand, Senator Bernie Sanders, and the other hand, Orrin Hatch. And there is not a wider philosophical divide known to man than those two. And they both concurred that Craven wow. should not be scheduled. So the DEA took notice of all of this. And so for the first time in 82 prior recommendations from the FDA to remove a dangerous substance that was killing people, that's what they have to prove for emergency scheduling authority. The uh, DEA said, no, we're going to withdraw the notice. And they did two things. One is they opened it for public comment. So between October 13th, when they, they formally announced that they were going to withdraw the notice of intent to schedule, and December 1st of 2016, the DA invited public comment. They got two, 232,323, I think, comments, 99.1% of which were to not ban Kratom. And you had a wide spectrum of people. You had scientists, you had doctors, medical professionals, researchers, you had average Kratom users, you had people that in law enforcement, veterans groups, all of which spoke against this outrageous abuse of power by the FDA. The second thing that the DEA said is that they wanted the FDA to produce by December 1st of 2016 a full eight-factor analysis. That is the document that's required to justify the scheduling of any substance under regular rulemaking uh, that the DA would then consider in their evaluation. The American Kratom Association sought the assistance of Jack Henningfield, who is a one of the world's leading experts in substance abuse uh, for, for dietary supplements and pharmaceuticals. Uh, he had worked 16 years at the National Institute of Drug Abuse. He was very familiar with eight-factor analyses. He had actually drafted many of them while at NIDA. And so he agreed on a pro bono basis because he believed that the FDA was wrong to do an eight-factor analysis, and that document was submitted to the Drug Enforcement Administration the day before it was due on, on uh, November 21st uh, on the 30th uh, of 2016. The FDA did not respond to the DEA in that time frame. So what the Henningfield eight-factor analysis revealed was that within the discretion of the Drug Enforcement Administration, they could schedule Kratom's alkaloids much like any other thing that they could do, like caffeine. They could schedule caffeine because the safety profile of caffeine was far worse than Kratom. They could also schedule some of the, uh, of the ingredients in uh, some of the pain relief medications that were sold over the counter. They could do that, but they, because of the balance of social uh, good that comes from the availability of these products to the public, the DA in the past had not scheduled them. And so then Dr. Henningfield went through an analysis of 
the benefits of Kratom. And looking at research that had been done, demonstrated that people for centuries had used it safely and that the only incidents of adverse events that were related to deaths were, in fact, because of adulterated Kratom products or polydrug use of people that had a, a serious addiction to uh, pharmaceutical products and opioids that were killing them. And he analyzed the, uh, the data saying that there's no evidence that demonstrates that Kratom's alkaloids have the same pharmacological effect as opioids on the brain. So the DEA then had this authoritative document before them. They stood down and did nothing, uh, which is unique in and of itself, because if it were true what the FDA was saying, that there were these deaths, and by the way, the 44 deaths that they cited were over a, a five-year period globally. It wasn't in, just in the United States. They had, in order to justify that number, they had globally. far beyond the normal parameters that are used in the evaluation of any scheduling request. And, and you look at the 44 deaths. I've already told you about the guy that died of a, a gunshot wound. Another mm -hmm. one was an individual who had been released from a mental institution and suffered from bipolar disorder all of his life. Uh, when he got out a week later, he hung himself. When the autopsy report showed that he had eight substances in his system that were dangerous, that would have killed him had he continued to use them if he hadn't committed suicide, and he had kratom uh, in his system. Another document uh, related, or another death was related to an individual in Germany who was high, jumped out of a second floor window, sustained significant injuries, refused medical treatment, went up to his bedroom and died a couple of hours later from internal bleeding. He also, in addition to dangerous substances in his talk screen, had taken credit. So this is the kind of stretch that the FDA has used in order to justify what they claim are these deaths. So we, uh, the American Kratom Association, contracted with an independent toxicologist uh, to analyze all of those deaths. We got all of the information from the FDA uh, under a FOIA request of all the toxicology reports. Her conclusion was that they're all polydrug use and all uh, uh, adulterated Kratom products, with the exception of one that the FDA has repeatedly cited as being significant because it's the one in which only Kratom was identified as the substance that caused the death. So they were investigating that. The FDA was investigating it. Now, was that normally, in the United States? Uh, well, yes, it was. That but one guy was, that they were talking about on Leaf of Faith? The one guy. Now, I don't know if it's the same person, but the FDA, we, we repeatedly asked the FDA, because by the way, this was in February of 2017 or 18. Yeah, the guy who jumped off a bridge. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. We don't know who it was. Oh, but, okay. but we've repeatedly asked them, because, by the way, you have an army of investigators at the FDA who say, by Gottlieb's, Dr. Gottlieb's statement, we're going to investigate this one intensively. A year later, they finally confessed to us, well, there's no medical records for the death. We had a familiar report, which means a parent oh. reported the death and said it was the only thing my kid was on was Kratom. Now, that's nonsense, because, you, you look, everybody wants to think their kid's are doing well. We want to think the best of our children. It is understandable that a parent would be distraught over the death of their child, but for the FDA to rely upon a family report saying that the only substance my kid was on was Kratom, and he wasn't on any bad drugs, and not have a talk screen or an autopsy report to back that up is, is malfeasance. I mean, it's craziness, and yet that's what they do. But it, it illustrates how far they'll go. 
And I'll give you one other example, which is astounding. When we looked at that, when the, the expert looked at this, it was Dr. Jane Babin. She found the report of two deaths in Germany, and that was derivative of a peer-reviewed published article. It's called the Domingo Study, and it was referenced in the database that the FDA used, and they cited as this very important journal entry uh, that was from a highly respected journal, and the title of it, and I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially said, two deaths associated with microdiet consumption, right? But if you read the article, what they were doing is they looked at the, the, whether there was a dose response uh, to the, the amount of kratom that a person was taking that would be associated with their death. So they took the highest level of concentration of microgynae in the bloodstream of a decedent at, up to that point, and they looked at the lowest level, and they wanted to see if there was any relationship to the ingestion of kratom in the death of those individuals. And their conclusion was that there wasn't any. The kratom was the cause of it, and yet the FDA, and it's got to be one of the classic schlock events of the century, they shipped those two deaths over as being credible kratom deaths when the conclusion of the study was completely sideways from that, uh, and yet they did it. So that shows you how far down the path of this, they put blinders on, and they willfully decided to mislead the DEA. So between uh, the December 1st, 2016, and October 17th of 2017, when the FDA finally ponied up their eight-factor analysis, uh, and we had no ability to look at it because, because under rulemaking you can't see, we were left in the dark about exactly what their intent was. Well, they made it clear. They came out now with the 44 deaths. They claimed it was an opioid. And in fact, in February of 2018, because of the controversy that we generated by showing that the deaths were bogus, and that the pharmacologic reports that have been done on Kratom didn't show the same opioid-like effects that they were claiming. They don't have classic opioid. Kratom doesn't have uh, classic opioid effects. Dr. Gottlieb announced in February 6th, I think it was, of 2018, and he said, we have developed a novel, his word, a novel computational analysis that, that confirms that the, alkyl the suspect alkaloids in Kratom bind to the new opioid receptors in the brain. Well, guess what? We've known that for two decades. The question is not whether they bind to those new receptors. And by the way, there are other substances that do. St. John's wort, Noxalone does, the anecdote for an overdose for an opioid uh, victim. They bind to the new opioid receptors. Uh, and here's an interesting thing. There's a peer-reviewed study uh, uh, article published in a reputable journal that says that analyzes the effects of foods and why people uh, actually have pleasurable effects from certain foods and others. Cheese binds to the new opioid yeah. receptors in the brain. Yeah. So, so this is nonsense what they said. But you know, they made this grandiose statement saying, and of course it's all designed to demonize kratom. That's the whole deal. So here's Dr. Gottlieb standing up there saying, we got these deaths, we've got this computational analysis, which by the way, if I were a, a drug company and I were to walk into the FDA and say, I'm basing my application on a computational analysis that – that uh, you know has the following assumptions, they would laugh me out of the room. They will not allow that kind of data, and yet they will submit that data to the, the Drug Enforcement Administration for a major policy decision that would impact millions of people in terms of their access to an otherwise safe natural ingredient. So, and, and by the way, they abandon their their responsibility to regulate by publishing standards for the manufacturing of kratom products. 
And so that's that's a huge problem because if they were to do that, uh, we could protect the safety of consumers. They've elected not to do that. The one thing I should tell you is that the FDA is very good at, and we applaud them for doing it, is that they will, when they identify a Kratom vendor that makes an impermissible health claim. In other words, they say it cures opioid addiction or cures depression or reduces anxiety. Those are health claims that a vendor cannot make. And the FDA does aggressively go after those companies and forces them to change those kinds of representations. We support that. Right. An individual citizen, an individual citizen has the right to make their decision about what products they use to handle those kinds of conditions on their own. And as long as just nobody's marketing it that way, but if I go on to a, uh, the AK forum or I go on to Reddit and I find someone that says, you know, I've had good success with this, uh, I have every right to go and use it. And, and under the law, the FDA has no authority on, in terms of restricting me from making my own independent decision about products that I would use for my health and well-being. So, Is that going to the, like the First Amendment? I mean, freedom of speech at that point? Well, it's, it's a constitutionally protected right, but it's not, it's not freedom of speech. The freedom of speech implicates the marketing side, but there are restrictions there. But this is just – there's no authority in the law that gives this, any kind of regulatory pathway for the FDA to interdict an individual citizen from taking a substance that they deem to be useful and have found to be beneficial for their, their own health, unless it is killing them, a dangerous substance, which they have to document. And that's why they went the, the route of trying to claim that Kratom was killing people, even though it was bogus. And so they left themselves in a real conundrum there. Uh, we were not permitted to get a copy of the eight-fact analysis that the FDA submitted, but uh, a reporter foiled it, and a clerk at the FDA inadvertently released it. So we, Now, the problem was that when he or she produced it under the FOIA request from this reporter, they ran it through the copier, and instead of copying it both pages, because it was a two-page document, they only copied one side. So we got half of the report. But we had 12 uh, independent scientists look at the FDA's eight-factor analysis, and they wrote a scathing rebuttal to it, because they saw enough of what the premise of the FDA's claims were about Kratom to say that it was bogus. And, and a couple of the scientists said that if they had produced something that bad, that they would, they would not have been uh, – uh, it wouldn't have been published, and certainly it wouldn't have been credible – and they think the FDA is just further evidence of the FDA's bias against a natural substance because they don't like uh, these substances not being, uh, not being controlled by them uh, in a regulatory scheme. So we know that the, the DEA uh, has had that eight-factor analysis since October 17th of 2017 till today. Normally, the FDA will, will respond to a recommendation for scheduling from the FDA within 90 days. And wow. if it's a very complex new drug application compound, they have the authority by signing a, a letter saying we need 180 days, and they can get that. But in this case, they have sat silent, and we know why. Because they're not convinced that the FDA is right. The National Institutes of Drug Abuse have withdrawn their support for the recommendation. They've gone out and done studies. And one of the key factors in an eight-factor analysis that has to be proven one is the safety, and we debunk their death data. The other is they have, to, they have to prove that it has an addiction liability that's dangerous. And so the National Institute of Drug Abuse commissioned two studies. One was an NIH grant, 
and was given to Dr. Hemby and his uh, group of scientists. And the second was an a, a intramural study, which means it's done in the NIDA labs themselves. The, the purpose of these grants was to do animal studies, which are very expensive, but they're the gold standard in addiction liability to determine whether the alkaloids in Kratom are highly addictive and therefore dangerous. The Hemby study was published in June of 2018, and their conclusion was that there is no addiction liability to Kratom, and they found a very interesting conclusion that then merited further study, and that was that in the test animals, they found that the test animals, when they were subjected to pain, actually developed a, a reduction in the craving for morphine, which was the reference drug that they were using. So wow. That, that just blew everybody away. because That's it proves, awesome. It proves the anecdotal reports that have been submitted by numerous people that Kratom's helping them manage their pain better than opioids, didn't get off of opioids, it was now proven. So NIDA, the second study, the intramural study, was published two weeks later. Now, these are independent. They were done at about the same time, but not together. They came to the same conclusion. Now, they worded the addiction liability, say it's not significant addiction liability, but they came to the same conclusion about the potential for Kratom being a non-addictive pain therapy that needed to be researched. So NIDA has issued to date about $10 million in studies for Kratom specifically for that purpose, and they have... Wait, go back. Pipe- How much? How much? $10 million. Now, they, they have a pipeline of another $30 billion that they have asked our assistance on in securing a safe, a sustainable supply of Kratom into the research labs uh, that is pure. And so we have worked with people over in Indonesia that where it grows, uh, and we've been able to secure that supply chain for this research. And that's why you have a five-year study that's going on at the University of Florida under Dr. McCurdy. He has another one that will be in three years, different uh, endpoints, uh, and they're able to get it. And now the NIDA people are telling us that they're going to expand the availability of new grant uh, applications for Kratom products because this is exciting. At the same time, the U.S. Congress in the 2020 fiscal year appropriations specifically said that the, the Kratom should be studied, and they've allocated and directed more money for research. And they, they, they said that because of the reports that people have made about the ability of, of, to use Kratom to reduce opioid use, this is an important public imperative. So if we, we get to the bottom line here of where you have a harm reduction strategy, and that's an important public policy, public health policy in the United States, if we find something that will reduce the harm of the, the prescribed uh, product, then you use it. And in this case, we found it with Kratom. Yeah. People are successfully doing it. Now, I can tell you that in my own experience, in 1982, I think it was, we first got exposed to the HIV virus. We had no idea what was going on from a public health perspective, and we saw that crash out of control very quickly. And so the government did something that was unprecedented up to that point. We knocked down every barrier that was in place that would have impeded research at any level. And more importantly, when the clinical trial uh, was established, we opened it up to everyone. So anyone that had HIV at that point that wanted to try some of these cocktails of drugs that were being researched, at the time of the approval of the one that was most effective, we had over almost 5,000 people in that trial, which normally involves a couple of dozen people. Mm-hmm. That's what the government should be doing to Kratom. We ought to be looking at harm reduction, yes. particularly with the, the demonstrated success that people are having 
of getting off of, of opioids. And now you have some animal studies that document that. But instead, the FDA has burrowed their heads in the sand, and they are continuing to, to wage their war on Kratom with one of the most irresponsible disinformation campaigns known to man. And they do it with impunity right now. Uh, and that's why we're out in the States pushing hard for the Kratom Consumer Protection Act. And we're hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a federal Kratom Consumer Protection Act filed uh, that will stop the FDA in its tracks and stop them from their nonsense and force them to deal with this responsibly. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Oh, this is, this is like music to my ears. And it's important for every Kratom consumer and it's to maintain the accessibility of Kratom products. And it's important for those people that are still on the journey to find an alternative to the deadly opioids and the highly yeah. addictive opioids that are there now. And so part of the, the important component of the Kratom Consumer Protection Act is that it requires all vendors to register in the state where a Kratom product is sold. It requires a certificate of analysis on the finished Kratom product to demonstrate that there has not been an artificial enhancement of the alkaloids. We know that the two principal alkaloids, there are about 40 alkaloids in the Kratom plant. The two principal ones are uh, mitragyny or metrogenine and 7-hydroxymetrogenine. Mm -hmm. uh, the metrogenine is about 66% of the overall alkaloid content of the plant, and 7-hydroxymetrogenine is about 1.5%. We know, based on the, the analysis of those alkaloids, that if 7-hydroxymetrogenine were enhanced and elevated and concentrated, it could be deadly. So oh, yeah, it's like opiate. Opiate. Exactly. They've, so what, they've done what it. What we want is, and we've seen, by the way, uh, good evidence. The Lydecker study uh, a couple of years ago demonstrated that there are commercial products on the market that are highly adulterated with synthetic 7-OH. So that's why the, yeah. the, the requirement we have in the state legislation, and it will be in the federal, hopefully the federal legislation will do the same, it requires that the percentage of alkaloid content in the finished product cannot exceed what's present in the natural plant. Then we require that the, the manufacturer certify that they use current good manufacturing practices and that they label it completely. So everybody knows what's in that product. You cannot add any dangerous substance to it. So we see today unscrupulous vendors who are spiking the kratom, oh, yeah. natural kratom, with uh, abusive products. And so if you hear someone, and I tell legislators this all of the time, if you hear someone that says, oh, I got high on kratom, it is likely that what they're actually taking is an adulterated product. Thank and you. And there is a possibility that a person has an addiction profile, which is a, a mental health issue, where they, they have this placebo high. That's possible. But that's rare. Most of, almost every report that someone gets, oh, I took Kratom, I got me high. Well, that's because it spiked with something and did get them high because the, we know that there are two things that's true about the natural Kratom plant based on good science. One is that when it hits the new opioid receptor in the brain, it does not have the reinforcing euphoric effect as opioids. We know that. Secondly, we know that there, and this is a very technical issue, there's a G-protein arrestor, which says that it's, which makes the alkaloids in, in, uh, in Kratom partial agonist, unlike opioids. When an opioid is a full agonist, goes to the respiratory system and suppresses it. That's why people die of opioid overdoses. They literally suffocate. 
There right. is no evidence, none, that that the mitragyny or 7-hydroxymitragyny have any significant impact on the respiratory system because it doesn't get there because of this G protein arrest and brain. It's like a way station that you know, says, no, you can't go there. And here we are with an FDA that is out of control making the claim that that Kratom is an opioid, has the same opioid effect as classic opioids, and that is not true. The, the science disputes it directly, and the FDA is wrong on the science, and they're grossly wrong on the policy. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, so where do you see Kratom going in five years? Well, uh, go back to 19, or 2016. I, I, it was our belief that it was going to be off the market. It was a yeah, surprise right? <laughs> to me. It was a surprise to me. It was a surprise to Dr. Henningfield because he told the AK the same thing. Uh, we, here we are in 2020, and we're seeing more information come out that supports the case for continued consumer access to Kratom. I was in Maryland yesterday at a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, that that was attempting to, um, uh, to to ban Kratom. And the sponsor of the bill uh, was there, and he made a statement saying, you know, I this is what I want to do. I want to ban this because I know it's dangerous. It's killing people. He said, but I'm hearing a lot of people uh, saying maybe that's not the case, and so I'm interested in hearing. So he sat down, and you had over two dozen people that stood up there and told heartfelt stories about how Kratom has saved their lives and how Kratom has helped them to become fully functional in their lives. Those testimonials are powerful. I was proud to stand with these people, and I have seen it replicated across the country in these hearings. In Utah, I think there were 120 people that showed up to testify. There was one person that signed up that was against it. And by the time they got to him, about halfway through this testimony, he was a professor of natural something down at Brigham Young University, he said, I'm persuaded. He said, I thought this was going to do the following. He said, but now I listen to these people. There's no question you ought to enact the Crane Consumer Protection Act. Uh, When it passed in Utah, it was 24 to 1 in the Senate. In Georgia, it was replicated. Now, there was a a testimony of a fellow in Georgia where he stood up and said, I'm I'm addicted to Kratom. I'm in a detox program right now. Uh, It's been horrible. And I asked him after uh, the hearing, I said, where do you buy your Kratom? He said, well, I get it on the internet. I said, have you ever been tested? They had the Kratom tested to see whether it spiked with something. He said, no, but he said, I, I, said, I have to admit that, uh, that when they did my blood test, I don't even take the Kratom and it showed me with heroin. But they just passed it off saying it was a residual effect from past use of heroin. Well, that's ridiculous. Heroin doesn't wow. stay that long in your blood system. So that was one that's an outlier. And it, it, by the way, it passed 164 to 1 in the Georgia House and unanimous 50 to nothing in the Senate. We went to Arizona, same thing. Unanimous in both houses. In Nevada, it was, it was over. It was, uh, uh, the testimony was powerful and uh, it was unanimous in the Senate and it was 39 14 in the House. The, and, the, and the reason that we didn't do as well in the House is that a medical doctor who's a member of the House stood up and literally <coughs> read from the FDA talking points about Kratom. And, of course, we didn't oh, wow. have a chance to rebut that because that was on the floor when it was happening. But we see that when people fairly evaluate this case on a legislative level, that they get it. 
And this is why we're winning in these states. I'll give you one last example that was powerful to me. As I listened in Utah to, uh, there was a woman that came up and she told her own personal story, which was pretty compelling. Now, she didn't have a lot of time to describe it, but she, it was heartfelt. We were invited to come to the governor's office for a ceremonial signing of the Craven Consumer Protection Act, and we were allowed to invite some people. So I extended the invitation to her. Her name is Laura Romney. Uh, she, she, the governor, when he was signing the bill, walked in and said, can someone tell me what Kratom is? Because he didn't know. And so wow. I attempted to explain a little bit. And he said, well, how do, how do you use it? And this woman, Laura Romney, stepped up and said, well, let me tell you my story. And what she told was amazing. She said that about three and a half years ago, she woke up one day with a very rare brain condition where she literally, and there's a great technical name for it that I don't recall, that literally it created a pain from the top of her lips to the top of her head similar to an ice cream headache, which is about 10 times worse than what you experienced. It was completely debilitating. The doctors could not figure out what to do. They did a brain operation where they literally went in and tried to, to uh, uh, you know, cut the nerve endings that were causing this pain. did not work. They did a second brain operation where they put an electric stimulator in to counteract the pain. That didn't work. She was put on opioids. She said that her life was a mess because she could only, because of her medical condition, take opioids to control eight hours of the pain. So she had to choose whether she wanted to sleep or whether she wanted to take care of her children and work. Wow. Uh, wow. She said it was a horrible situation. A friend of hers called her and said, have you heard about or thought about trying this stuff called Kratom? She had never heard about it before. She said that the friend came over and she, and she told the governor, the first day that I took Kratom, I felt immediate relief and I have been off of the opioid addiction since. And she said, you know, that it's not, it's not perfect in the sense that it doesn't eliminate the pain. It allows her to function. She can sleep. She can take care of her children. She can work. This was, a, she said, it gave me my life back. And you think about the consequences that it has for real people in their lives to hear that kind of example that tells you that we're doing the right thing and that the yeah. FDA is wrong and that they ought to reverse position on this and do the right thing for the American people. I'm in. Yeah, I'm with it. Um, I know so, you are. I know you are. <laughs> what do you, how long does Kratom stay in your system? Well, I, I don't know the exact, exact science of that, but they say that, that it's a couple of days. You can still pick it up on, the, uh, uh, on a blood talk screen, uh, but it, it's, it's pretty fast acting. I mean, well, relatively. Within 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you feel the effects of it, but then it washes away, which is why you have to take more of it. I mean, it's not like uh, you can develop a dependency on Kratom, by the way. Uh, right. The same addiction or the dependency profile as you have with caffeine. Uh, and, and if you go off of Kratom, uh, most people uh, have a very mild withdrawal symptom, similar to caffeine, where you have a headache, maybe a runny nose, maybe upset stomach for a week, and then you're done. That is nothing like a You detox shouldn't have to go to detox. Okay. Yeah. Right, like, right. It's Absolutely ridiculous. Not. Absolutely not. I've heard the same thing. I, I talk to doctors about it, and I, I, I like to know their, their, their input on it. And they're like, oh, yeah, people are coming in. We're sending them to Suboxone. Just like, wow. Well, and if they're dealing with the underlying uh, chronic or acute pain issue, uh, there's obviously other issues involved there yeah. where they're taking other substances. So clearly, uh, Kratom may be one thing that they're doing. But they're having to do other things because, uh, and that's why you end up with this confusion about uh, this, what's going on with Kratom, because they're using at the same time these other uh, drugs. 
Yeah, well, we just need to we just need to educate, keep educating, like we're doing, and like you said, testimony is how we're going to get this into legislation. So I see Kratom in five years as a uh, more accepted. I see it as something that people uh, will be able to use effectively. I see it potentially with uh, the studies that are being done uh, where they might be able to develop a non-addictive pain therapy that could be synthesized in the appropriate way that the government could take care of and offer it to people as an alternative to deadly opioids. Uh, I see that as the potential here. But certainly, uh, as we continue our work, we've got four states to pass the Creating Consumer Protection Act. Which we states are, out, are they? We've got Utah, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Uh, we have a couple of states that, were, that had banned Kratom that currently we're working on, and we, we're, we have, we're optimistic we're going to be successful. Wisconsin is one of them. By the way, these states, the six states that banned Kratom did so between that period of 2009, when there, were, there was a report of nine deaths in a 12-month period in Sweden uh, that caused a concern by every public health official in the world. And when they got to 2016, they were, the FDA was pumping out this, this horrible information about Kratom, uh, saying that everybody should ban. So those six states jumped on board. Uh, Wisconsin now has a bill that passed unanimously out of the Senate Health Committee saying that they wanted to replace the ban with the Kratom Consumer Protection Act, and that's being evaluated now in the Wisconsin legislature. Uh, in Rhode Island, Dr. Hennigfield and I and Kurt Bramble, the senator from Utah that had been the sponsor, met with the director of the Department of Public Health in Rhode Island, and she formally opened a review of the uh, current ban on Kratom that had been implemented by the Rhode Island statute by her office in order to do it. And that was, that was monumental because that, that process, we know if they evaluate the science, that that ban will be lifted. In Vermont, there was a bill filed that would decriminalize both marijuana and Kratom. Uh, now, the, the interesting part of uh, Vermont legislation, the ban, was it only banned synthetic versions of 7-hydroxymitrogeny, but that has been viewed as a ban by everybody that talks about it. So that's one that, uh, uh, that I think has a potential for passage. And in Alabama, we've hired a lobbyist down there. We're optimistic that we can overturn that one. Uh, I'm in... In, uh, in Mississippi today to meet with the sponsor of the Kratom ban. Uh, we're hopefully going to switch him, as we did in, in Maryland, the sponsors to support our approach with responsible regulation rather than a ban. Uh, we're doing well in, in a number of other states, in Kansas and Missouri, uh, doing great in those states. We've got bills in New York. Uh, there's a bill in Virginia that calls for a study of Kratom, but the unfortunate part is it directs the pharmacy board to do it. And that's the wrong place for an evaluation of Kratom. The pharmacy board members across the country traditionally look at this. Pretty biased, being, right? Yeah, they're biased because they want everything to be behind the counter and be a prescription. Uh, we think that should be done by the Department of Health. So we're working on that. In Ohio, uh, we have a, a, the pharmacy board was death on us. And we now have a bill with Gary, Representative Gary Shearer. And there's going to be a hearing next week on that. And uh, Dr. Hennigke will be testifying and as well as uh, Senator Bramble is going to come out and testify of his, his experience with the Creating Consumer Protection Act. So we are doing great things uh, in promoting consumer access to Kratom. It's a battle we need to continue. We have a, a bill in Oregon that I testified before the, uh, uh, the, the Senate committee, or I'm sorry, the House committee uh, two weeks ago. 
and very favorable response. And we're looking now to get that through uh, the Oregon House. In Idaho, we have a bill in. Uh, Colorado, we have a bill in. So we're doing a lot in order to keep this fight going. Awesome. That's, that's, so do you think it'll be on the ballot this year, or is it going to be no, on the ballot? Is, no, 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 they're just going to pass it. This is just legislative uh, process where the, the legislatures will pass these bills in order to allow, protect consumer access, make sure we get pure creative products that are unadulterated uh, in, for sale in those states. So that's actually kind of jumping a step. Well, no, that's traditionally the process to use. Ballot initiatives are unique and, and rare. Uh, so in this case, we wanted to follow the traditional legislative route, and we're doing well there. Cool. That's awesome. So um, when are you coming out to Oregon again? As soon as they schedule the hearing, uh, depending on schedules, and whether it's me or someone else that'll part of our team, we're going to be uh, pushing ahead. That's so exciting. Um, thank you so much for your time. And all you do, do for this community, my prayers are with you and, and the cause always. So, I mean, brother, thank you so much for taking the time for us. Hey, I'm glad to do it. And all of your listeners should, when the opportunity arises, show up, tell your stories because they have an impact. And nothing was more clear than yesterday in Maryland when you had the sponsor of the House, I'm sorry, the, the Senate sponsor, say that he was persuaded up he wanted to take it for his arthritis and his knee. And as I walked out of that hearing, uh, a guy grabbed me and he said, I'd like to talk to you. It was the House sponsor. He'd come over to listen to the Senate hearing, and he said, what you said there was persuasive, and I, I would be glad to help to change the ban to responsible regulation. That was because people told their stories, and so I encourage everyone, when the opportunity is available, tell your story because it makes a difference. Always. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. You uh, are tuned to Wash Your Thoughts with Mac Hatto. Signing off. Thank you so much, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Good night.